you can't stand here and say, look, I, I followed, let us say, the drug control law or whatever, whatever. And I can't stand here and say that, you know, I will not pay a single rupees bribe. It's not possible for an Indian businessman at my scale, for sure. Corruption isn't black and white. But when the environment is fluid, where do you draw the line? I can give this in writing and you can survey that these SMEs who are less than 10 million. Everybody would have to get through this. Welcome to the second season of Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty and global experts on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. As we were interviewing for our last episode, we were inspired by a question from one of our guests. Is it possible to be an island of virtue in a sea of corruption? After talking so much about corruption, we thought it might be nice to take a little break and go visit this island of virtue to see for ourselves. After all this podcasting, frankly, I could use a vacation. I could sit on the beach, enjoy the sun, play in the sand, maybe even get a pina colada. But it turns out that even this island has its problems. And it's hard to relax when there's something out there lurking under the water. You see, in our previous episode, we discuss corruption on a systemic level, how it works, and how you can fight it. But the truth is, many business owners don't get to engage with systems. They have to deal with corruption operationally. They're actually swimming in it. And down there, things are complicated. So today, we're exploring that question. Can you be an island of virtue in a sea of corruption? And we're doing it in India with a case study of a business that has been navigating this issue for many years. Hi, I'm Raja Kopala, the chairman, managing director of Avis Vascular Centers. We are a chain of vascular surgical centers. So we're more than a clinic. So we sublease areas of a hospital to run a mini hospital in that hospital. So we call them a store and store for lack of a better word, but we have now 18 centers pan across India, mostly in South India, but pan India right now. Raja studied and practiced medicine in the US before returning to India in 2013. And the Indian business ecosystem took some time to get used to. There are some organizations that track corruption around the world. And one of them produces something called the Corruption Perception Index. And that's where they interview thousands of people, including business people, and ask them, what do you perceive is the level of corruption in India? And they have a scale from zero to 100, where zero means utterly corrupt. Just nothing happens without corruption. And 100 means everything operates under perfect legal conditions. I'm just curious, where do you think India lies? What do you think India's score is? I would probably put it around 25, maybe. Um, I have seen worse. So I, when I came back from US, I was shell-shocked. I was like, this is ridiculous. And then, you know, I've since moved on. So I, I would probably rate it somewhere between 25 to 30 at this point, yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's all relative, right? Well, the actual score for 2021 is 40. So not quite in the middle. And then if you rank all the countries that they survey, they survey 180 countries. India's right in the middle there too. They rank 85 out of 180 countries on the 
Corruption Perception Index. To put Roger's story in perspective, we turn to someone who thinks very seriously about these issues. On that, I, if I may, I would want to share a, a joke a Pakistani friend of mine told me. That's the voice of Swamitra Jha. Being from India and having a friend from Pakistan, yeah, we always used to make fun of each other. So one day, I to pull his leg, I said, well, you know, Shiraz, Pakistan is uh, the second most corrupt country in the world, according to Transparency International. He said, oh, actually, we're the most corrupt, but we bribed them. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Aside from comedy, Sam has another job. I'm Swamitra Jha. I'm an associate professor of political economy at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, as well as a senior fellow at the Friedman Spogli Institute for International Affairs. What is the importance of political economy at a business school? I think it's very important. I might be a bit biased, but I, I think it's being aware that a lot of the things that we think of as sort of purely driven by markets are actually driven to a large extent by politics as well. You know, think about food prices. That's driven by the U.S. farm bill and, and EU agricultural policy or, or price supports in many developing countries. Or think about labor. That's driven mostly by, to a large extent, by immigration laws and, and restrictions of mobility. At some level, all markets are connected with politics. I think helps us become better at strategy and helps us become better at trying to achieve you know, the objectives of our organization, which I think is to change organizations and change the world. What Psalm says is true all over the world, but it looks different depending on where you are and what you do. When Raja came back to India, he had to learn how to operate in a completely different ecosystem. You came from the U.S., you're a bit naive, as you said. You weren't really clear on how to navigate the system. You made some mistakes. What are the big lessons that you've learned over the years in managing this type of risk? Well, number one is that um, you cannot be a island of integrity and virtue in a sea of corruption and mediocrity. You can't stand here and say, look, I, I followed, let us say, the drug control law or whatever, whatever. And I can't stand here and say that, you know, I will not pay a single rupees bribe. It's not possible for an Indian businessman at my scale, for sure. I can give this in writing and you can survey at least SMEs who are less than 10 million. Everybody would have to get through this. You just have to understand this is not going to go away. This goes all the way up to the very top. Everybody has their own self-interest. And to a degree, when this, when the legal system is a little weak, when the wages of a lot of these officers is very low to start with, there are a lot of factors, headwinds that make this happen. It's not you alone. It's not some guys giving money because they want to give money. There's a background to that. So try to understand, be more empathetic to the problem, and then you probably be easier for you. You know, I want to make sure in this conversation we don't excuse all other countries and just pick on India because I think Americans can be a little bit naive about the gazillion ways in which contracting and insurance industries and other things. Very, very slippery. Even medical practice in the U.S. can be very slippery. You know, one of the things, so you mentioned that before you went to India and set up your business, you were... You were a physician in the United States. And so how many years did you work in the U.S. as a doctor? Seven years. Seven years. So I'd love to hear whether you identified or observed similar types of challenges in the U.S. medical system. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm never a man to mince my words. It was It was pretty, it, it can get pretty close. This can be very almost incestuous at times as well. So we had 
the other extreme back when I was training were so much such expensive meals which a resident can't even think about or sponsored by these companies. I mean, I, I remember, I think the, the bill for each person at Fogo Di Chao was 300 bucks a person or something. So wait, we were talking about like a drug company hosting doctors for some kind of a so-called conference, right? Conferences, we'd have cruises. You know, that was the funny part. The cruise would be a four-day cruise for you and your wife. All day they would have talk about the drug at various ways, but you'd be in the swimming pool, you'd be drinking, eating, whatever. So, you know, I keep saying this, they have a law and they have the ethics. And the, and the ethics bracket is always bigger than the legal bracket almost all the time. So they are happy to compromise here and they'll stick, be around the law. So they don't actually break the law, but they'll be somewhere around breaking the law in the ethics aspect. And that's where I get, you know, a little worried. When I was younger and I was working overseas and advising governments, I was such a prima donna because I had, to, in my mind, I had this idea that the U.S., the United States had figured all these things out and was, you know, best practice. And I would, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but I would be lecturing senior government officials in other countries about their problems. And I was so naive because what the difference in the U.S. is that so much of what we call corruption in other countries, we've actually legalized it. So... You know, the whole process of dark money donations for political influence, it's legal, right? But it is millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent to influence the laws, but also the regulations that, that support those laws. And in most contexts, you would say, my God, that is so corrupt. But it's, it's legal, right? It's not ethical, but it's legal. I think we could do a whole episode about what it takes to get a restaurant license in New York City, and actually the story would not be different. It would look exactly the same, right? Corruption also looks different across industries. For Raja, it involves red tape, lots and lots of red tape. You're in the medical field, and presumably this is a field that requires lots of licenses and approvals, and there's a, probably quite a lot of heavy regulation in your sector. Do you require a lot of services from public officials in running this chain of, of hospitals and store-within-a-store store treatment facilities? There is enormous amount of regulation. We need to report to 23 licensing bodies. There are 23 guys who have to give us a permission uh, to run a hospital. And sometimes it's good. You know, obviously it's healthcare. You'd like regulation. And that's probably the reason why it's there. But sometimes it's almost duplication of the same thing going back and forth. I mean, out of the 23 guys, two guys parallelly take care of my fire problem. Like my fire complaints is done by two different people for some strange reason. So we have the Department of Fire, and then we have the Department of Municipal Affairs that also wants to look into fire for some reason. So you can get this permission, but that guy will not give permission, so on. So, so sometimes it's almost redundant and ridiculous, but this is how things, you know, especially medical, it's regulated world over, but it's just extraordinarily special in India. It's just, it's just so many of those permissions. Regulations are important to consumer protection, especially in fields like medicine but each license creates an interaction with a public official and thus an opportunity for corruption. But Raja found a novel way to decrease these touch points. Well, the store within the store of facilities, that's the other reason why we moved to this, uh, that model is that a lot of the onus of licensing is on the store owners. I mean, the, the, the primary hospitals into which we set up the hospital. With the 23 licenses you needed to get, that regulatory forest or jungle pushed you to change your model 
from having a standalone hospitals to having sort of hospital within a hospital because then the burden lies with the hospital that's hosting you. So can you translate that into reduced number of licenses that you have to worry about? Oh, big time. I mean, I operate across five states. So each state again, so when we say corruption, you know, it's very important to have a very nuanced view. It's not corruption, corruption as in a bad word always, but there's an ecosystem that's built around it. And I have to deal with five ecosystems. I mean, there's no way with my bandwidth I would be able to do it. So we said, look, let's, in, in return, if you lose about 5 to 8% of the revenue top line in handling those guys or whatever it takes to set up the licenses and all that, so be it, right? So this is a conscious plunge we took, but we see examples all the time where less regulation is easier to start, easier to run, easier to make more profits, more shareholder value, more jobs, better promotions, everything, right? But at my level, with my scale, I can't cut it down. I mean, there's no way. So we just have to play the system and just do all the hacks that will make you follow all the laws. At the same time, you know, make sure your life's a little smoother. But even well-intentioned regulations can have unintended consequences. So this whole thing, there's a huge ecosystem, like I keep saying. You know, there's a guy who does PNDD licensing. So I do vascular work for the legs. You know, I do ultrasound for the legs. And I, that's how I diagnose varicose veins, for example. Now, in India, I mean, I know it's done for a good reason, because we had a lot of female feticides, so people would kill female babies in this country. So they went overboard in the other extreme and said, any usage of medical ultrasound waves requires a special permission with, and if you don't have the permission, you could be arrested, you lose your license. It's a criminal offense not to have it. And that's called PNDT. So I could be doing an echocardiography, I still require a PNDT. I could be doing ultrasound of the legs, I require a PNDT. I could do ultrasound of the brain in a baby, I need a PNDT. So the law is so ridiculous. Why it was set up for sex determination in children, in mums, the law is applied pan across because they have no way of distinguishing a guy who uses it for heart versus for legs versus babies, right? They have no way of implementing the law to that degree. So it's so ridiculous that now I have 18 centers. So in 18 places, I require this certificate. And this one, the host hospital will not give me. I have to acquire it on my own. And everywhere, it's a one to six month process. So while I can open up a center in, in 10 days, I have a six-month downtime, so I have to plan everything six months in advance. And why? Because this committee of PNDT meets once in three months. And if, God forbid, they met yesterday, they won't meet for another 89 days again. They want to make sure people are not using medical imaging devices to determine the sex of a fetus and thereby make decisions for infanticide, right? And so now they're saying anybody who has any type of imaging device needs a certification. You can't get it for six months, which means your business cannot, literally cannot function. So this is an example of a law with good intentions that's applied to everyone at a huge cost of doing business. So that's one example, right? And so this could literally shut you down for months. When you're navigating all that red tape, it's almost impossible not to trip up. So if the system is rigged to make ethical business impossible, why even try? I would say that it's good to be aware that you know, there are a lot of risks associated you know, with giving bribes and, and engaging in corrupt activities, particularly when you kind of get too connected through these <laughs> types of illicit transactions with certain people because you, you are no longer going to be able to act independently and people are aware of these things and they can then ask for more and they can keep holding you up until... Yeah, you're hostage now. Yeah. They and, you. 
But by the same token, Psalm and Raja agree, you have to face reality. Coming off a higher horse doesn't work. I was initially guilty of that. I said, you know what, I've, I've gone there, I've seen that. If this doesn't work, I go back to the US and so on. So I sort of had this very black or white approach. And in that, I assumed that whatever I was seeing in the US was perfect and whatever I was seeing was not good. Maybe that doesn't work. It's it's a fair amount of gray on both sides. I think there also there's a lot of stuff and here also there's a lot of stuff. So I think a more measured approach uh, works. It would be nice to say that the long-term benefits kind of outweigh the short-term ones and from trying to follow the law to the extent possible, but that might not always be the case, obviously. I mean, sometimes things are just going to be difficult. In these moral gray areas, every decision is contextual. But what you lose with that approach is consistency. And in this kind of fluid environment, consistency can be powerful. Let's go back to that island for a moment. There's a saying in English, to draw a line in the sand. It means to set a limit, a boundary that you won't cross. Of course, the line itself won't actually stop you from crossing. It's not a barrier. There's no penalty for stepping over it. But the more you cross that line, the less it means. And the more it disappears back into the sand. I think this is why it's good to be intentional about it. I think the the worst situation is where, where you think you're being ethical, but you know, it's sort of like a death by a thousand cuts where you, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, here's the kind of big story that I'm ethical, but then, all right, I'll make this compromise and then I'll make this compromise and I'll do it in these dimensions. Because I think, you know, one phrase that came up a lot in your discussion was this word slippery. <laughs> that things yeah. like begin to, once you kind of make those compromises, it's very easy to keep on making the next one and the next one. In fact, it gains momentum. So so I, I think that being aware that that's the big tendency and, and saying, well, look, I, you know, in this situation, maybe it's life or death and, you know, you have to just do a certain thing because, you know, it's better for humanity in the long run. <laughs> but I, I think the key is to kind of make it clear, look, this was done for these reasons and we judged it based on a set of criteria that we think are we still abide by. <laughs> And, you know, it was above a certain threshold or it wasn't. I like that. So it's, it rises to a sort of existential threat. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think as long as, long as it's clear what the criteria are, I think that's, that's the important thing. Because if there's no line, then there's going to be no check and no limit. Consistency also signals what type of business you're running. One that's willing to cut corners or one that tries to operate above board. And that's why Raja always tries to pay his fines. If it's, let's say the differential is 10x and you follow the law versus paying 1x and getting away by not following the law, follow the law. And that just makes things easier. Everything is recorded in the system. You know, like, like we forgot to pay a thing called director's tax. You pay 250 rupees every three months, which we forgot, God forbid. And so we had to pay 100,000 Indian rupees. And then they, the same guy calls me and says, you know, can you pay 10,000? I'll just make this go away. I said, no, I'm paying 1 lakh rupees because I want this this thing written up that I forgot and I paid, and therefore this case is closed. I don't want the next officer who comes here to open this case again. I prefer that approach because you pay 10x doesn't matter, but you made a mistake, right? So you make sure you shut the mistake, you, you cross your T's, you know, dots your I's, and that's one rule. Okay, so this is a key point. So the message to your team is we follow the law if we make a mistake and we get fined for it, we should pay the fine, but make sure it's documented, right? Because you want to establish a pattern with regulatory authorities that you guys own your mistakes, you pay your fines, you're not going to pay a bribe to get rid of the fine, you're going to 
do better to avoid those mistakes in the future. You're setting out a message to the regulatory group of people that are watching you what kind of a business person you are. When you have the soft power of not paying everything nilly-willy, and if you make a mistake, you admit it, and you pay the fines, then you will be taken seriously when you go with the real problem. That's my view, at least. So how do you remain consistent in an environment where the rules are constantly changing? One way is to have simple criteria that you apply to every decision. Raja, for instance, has outlined some things that he negotiates and some things that he doesn't. In this 23 bodies are supposed to inspect us. Some are subjective, some are objective. Things like taxation, sales tax, income tax, it's pure numbers game. So you check your numbers every time and then if your numbers are in your favor, it's a fairly straightforward thing, the whole taxation system. It's it's pretty lot of legalese, but we should be able to handle that. So again, then I don't, I, as a law, almost have never paid anything. Then you have the other half, which is subjective, you know. I don't know, I, the Pharmacy Act, for example, has about 400 points. I mean, I'm sure you can, you'll miss one or two for sure. Uh, you need to let go of some things. Like, for example, you know, we, we, work, we live in a street full of stores, you know, that have large hoardings that show their wares. So the government said it needs to be eight feet by 10 feet or something, some number. And they came up and said, look, everybody who has a hoarding more than eight feet has to pay a fine. Now I could I could say, look, I'm a hospital, A, so this hoarding law may not apply to me. I'm trying to give, give people directions to my place. I run a 24 seven clinic and there's no other clinic in this hospital. So I have enough reasons, which I represented to the commissioner who didn't want to hear it. So I paid the fine. But if I had a legal system that would give me a decision within a year, I would not pay a fine or a bribe. I would definitely go and litigate that. But I would, I know that if I took this to court, it would take me at least five years before I got a decision and the amount was at, at stake was very small. So sometimes it makes more sense to pay an unfair fine than to litigate. So there's two things here I want to capture that you've said something really interesting. The first is to be clear about which risks present the greatest threat to your business. So in other words, what is the intensity of the issue? What is the potential downside? So you're looking at if this goes bad, how painful will it be? And then there's another factor, which is how probable is this risk? So intensity of impact, probability of actually happening, these are two critical factors. So you may not have this written down, but dynamically you're managing this against probability and pain. Correct. Of course, it's hard to get consistency if you're not the one making the decisions. Do all of these cases come to you? Or is this something you, your team understands the marching orders, they understand the strategic framework, and, and they make these calls themselves? So I insist that they all come to me. Because um, I feel in the last seven years, the number of uh, things I have to pay out have decreased. And this could A, be because of better landscape, or B, because we've taken a value-based stand against it in, on most situations. And therefore, just like our vendors talk amongst themselves, so will these guys talk among this as they look, if you go there with a trivial problem, they aren't going to pay. I mean, they are going to push back. And that's something uh, we've sort of learned. We should develop that pushback attitude in, in the stakeholders. I think the other thing is, like, you don't want your staff to make those decisions. I wouldn't want my staff to be trying to figure out where the line is each time. I would want them to move that up to me or to someone I've designated to be the sort of the arbiter on that question, right? I don't want staff to be out constantly agonizing over what is the right thing to do. I want them to always know what the right thing to do is. And if they're really not sure, then 
ask somebody, right? I think that's right. And you want to consult the folks who understand what the implications are. I mean, I think there's sort of the ethical side of things, which are, but there's also, of course, the legal side of things. And, yeah. you know, and so leaders have to deal with the ethics and then lawyers have to deal with the law. And so within the confines of the law, you know, there's going to be a question of what is the right thing to do. Psalm says that organizational alignment may be hard, but it's definitely worth the effort. On an issue like corruption, as well as sort of other ethical things that a company is doing, it really helps to have the buy-in of the employees, not rather kind of instead of saying, well, this is like a top-down, this is what we do, which I think has its place. You want to kind of get the message out and convince people, look, this is the best thing for all of us, you know, even though it's going to mean that we spend more time doing things and it's going to be hard. You know, it'll help you get the right employees. It'll help you motivate the employees to, in moments where you're not going to be able to observe what they're doing. And I think that, you know, the extent to which you can kind of get people on board <laughs> with, with, with these approaches as well is often a challenging one, but I think one that's worth investing a lot of time in as well. Whew. All this corruption talk is stressful. So let's get back to that island. Ah, that's better. It's empowering to think about what you can influence in these circumstances. Your criteria, your consistency, and your employees. Of course, what's most distressing are the things that are outside of your authority, especially the bureaucrats who enforce regulations. But while you can't control how public officials treat you, you can control how you treat them. And that goes a long way. Relationship equals money. When you want to pay less, maintain a relationship. I'm afraid to say a lot of young business leaders, or even I when I came back, we come up from such a, such a chair that we can sometimes disrespect this process. I mean, I'm not saying you should respect it or, or, or praise it, but, but you can't hurt the guy's ego. You know, a small inspector comes. He writes the first information report of the so-called law that's broken. Or these are the guys who will actually write the report. And everything from that point is based on what he writes. Right, this very, very junior person. So so relationships matter. It matters a hell of a lot. So I, I now tell my guys, have a cup of coffee, talk to them, see the gravity of the law that's been broken. And you know, if he insists, then we come up with some number. But make sure this guy's ego is not hurt. Make sure it doesn't become a, you know, a pissing contest between us and them. And it, it can't be that. It shouldn't be that at the first level, for sure. Any junior officer comes, have a cup of coffee. These guys are very small guys, but they need their time under the sun. And his first report is what matters till the end of this case ends. So this is something that's very important. And this relationship building uh, with all the guys, I mean, in, in, funny, in a funny way, they are your stakeholders as well. You know, I always say, look, you have vendors, you have customers, and you have the whole regulatory bodies. You need to have a manager for that as well. So the government bodies are, part, are in your value chain. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely the case. And and also being aware of what their objectives are and, you know, and helping them achieve those objectives. So many folks want to be better civil servants and they want to advance in their careers. And so giving them the kind of, oftentimes businesses have a lot of expertise to provide that can help them learn and become better at what their jobs. And so that is an opportunity. So I think creating those relationships early in a way where you're kind of helping people become better at their jobs and treating them as ends, <laughs> not just as means, I think it can be really valuable down the line. Raja often looks for creative ways to align with public officials. And I'm a great believer in that soft power. For example, when we had COVID, for example, we were, we were doing free meal distribution. 
So I, I'm a guy who, who doesn't pay the officers, so to speak, on a daily, regular basis. I don't send them Diwali gifts or whatever. But during COVID, I made officers come and distribute meals as if it was their program, not mine. So I actually gave up the credit. So A, some other person is benefiting, but also I'm trying to show that I have this nice side to me, a, a philanthropic side to me, that in which you can participate. So we're all friends. We will all go out to the people and say that we are out there for you. So I'm, I'm a hospital, I'm there for you. You the police officer, you're there for you. They were getting thousand phone calls about hunger every day when the COVID first lockdown happened. So the, my first million meals, in that about 500,000, I made the officers give it. I said, look, it's your show. I don't even want my name out there. You just, these are the bags of rice and food and whatever, you just go for it. So you have to have device ways in which you can actually engage proactively, appeal to their nice side if they have one, and say that you're always on that side. And you're always on this guy who always, who doesn't break the law as a habit, who's always looking at the welfare of the people around them. And why don't you join us a little bit? And that would be a nice way of appealing to them if you can wield some soft power, which is what I believe in. Allowing other people to take the credit was kind of a good way of building a relationship. I think, I mean, I think it's good to share the credit, not just sort of <laughs> hand it off. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think that yeah, I understand why that was the case, and I can see that that would be very useful. I, I think the reason I say share the credit, because I think it's useful to have be embedded in the local communities, and that can also make you less susceptible to the hold-up situations that you can have when you kind of, you're based on relationships with specific mm-hmm. you know, members of the police or the bureaucracy. And so having kind of local support where people know that... You know, these guys in times of need, they helped us. I mean, it kind of inspires trust that, you know, they're providing medical services, which require a lot of trust already. So maybe they do care about us as human beings rather than, you know. I totally see that. Yeah. For industry-wide issues, it can even make sense to form bonds with your competitors. Oftentimes in economics, companies might be competing with each other in an industry, but at the political level, they have a lot in common. And so thinking about how to do things at an industry level can often be much more beneficial on the political side, saying, look, you know, we have this ridiculous queuing system. (laughs) Is there a way of streamlining it? Can we facilitate that? Can we provide help to the government so it's better at what it's doing? You know, if it's done at the industry level where people feel like, okay, this is a solution that makes everybody better off, it makes consumers better off, it makes the industry better off, I think the governments often will be quite receptive to it. And particularly the line ministries, folks who want to kind of show, look, you know, I did this meaningful thing that helped improve efficiency in this sector. But that's best coming from a collective group right. of folks. In An industry. industry association or something like that. Yeah. This can be an especially powerful strategy for taking on those well-intentioned regulations like the ultrasound law that Raja mentioned earlier. Being in a position where you say, well, look, you know, we can make this, we want to maintain the objective and the intent of this rule, but we want to narrow it in these ways that can also free up these other things. I think that's exactly where the, uh, you know, where an industry association can be very helpful. Chances are there's going to be others that might have similar issues, and then that's an opportunity to work together to change the regulation or change the law. There's another saying in English, no man is an island. You can't do it all on your own. That's especially true in these ecosystems. 
while it may feel like it's you against the world, if you can get other people on your team, navigating corruption can be a lot less daunting. I think that at the end of the day, you know, we can get quite cynical about bureaucracies, but I think a lot of these guys are just trying to make things better. And so if you kind of approach them and say, look, this is not just my problem. It's a problem that a lot of us face together. Let's try and make this work because we want to improve the medical you know, delivery for folks so they can walk in, yeah. in, in India. And I think that's a really powerful message that people will resonate with. You know, we all get bogged down in our day-to-day, but you know, remembering why you're doing something, I think. And, and there are certain kind of messages, I think, that people will find very appealing. You know, I, I think there are opportunities there that we, we sometimes miss by kind of tarring everyone with the same brush. All these strategies can help you survive the moral gray areas that come with corruption. They offer ways to mitigate risk and to turn obstacles into allies. But corruption can still be dangerous, both to the business and to the people running it. I mean, do you think Raja's taking risks by telling his story as bluntly as he did? I've asked him this straight out. I said, do you, you know, are you okay with everything you said here being on a podcast? He said, yeah, no problem. I mean, given that he, you know, he's following the law, as he said, 99.99% of the time. And when he's not, he's paying the fines. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't think there's a legal risk. That's often a, a question of perception because, you know, corruption does seem like it's ubiquitous. But... You know, this is often a case where there might there's bandwagon effects and there's can often be the case that people think that there's more corruption than there actually is or that more people are willing to be corrupt than they actually are. And, and so there's often what's called a false consensus emerging around issues like these. It could be the case that we are actually on this bifurcation moment where even a few individuals acting you know, in a visible way could really change the equilibrium. Corruption is contextual. What it looks like depends on where you are and what industry you're in. And your response has to be contextual too. The first step is to understand the ecosystem and your company's place in it. You've got to acknowledge reality and decide what is actually possible for your business. Being consistent and intentional can give you more control. So have criteria that will help you decide when you'll pay and when you won't. A line in the sand is useless if you keep crossing it. Find alignment within your organization and strive for it outside as well. Treat everybody with dignity, especially the junior people who are your primary touch points. Don't assume everyone is a villain. These public officials are entrusted with enormous responsibility to actually make public policy work for people. Finding partners can strengthen your position and make your life easier. Relationships with your industry, your community, even the system itself can provide solid ground. You cannot possibly hate the system and make this successful. You have to start falling in love with it somehow. It's, it's like a relationship you have to build. I'm grateful to Raja Kapala and Sumitra Jha for sharing their stories. This has been Grit and Growth with the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps us to share the stories of these incredible entrepreneurs with as many people as possible. To learn how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia, head over to the Stanford Seed website at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed. 
Erica Amoake-Ajay and VN Virgin researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Ganim and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Music